0: You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, everybody. I'm Josh Bannerman. Most people know me as OG, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast.
0: I've had an interesting history with financial advisors. I waltzed into a Fidelity storefront in the early 2000s and entrusted my nest egg to the person the secretary at the front desk handed me off to. Can you say tech bubble? That wasn't pretty. My second advisor was a super nice guy who seemed to study the stock market up and down. He was a big fan of a certain money manager who we eventually invested six figures in his fund. It turns out those high returns the year before I invested just weren't sustainable. And my last advisor was a good friend who mostly steered us in the right direction. My wife's returns on her 401k, however, were one to two percentage points higher on a similar asset allocation than his, though. So finally, I decided to go on my own, mostly because I knew I would never truly understand my financial plan until I had to construct it based on my own research. And I've done swimmingly well. I mean, who hasn't over the last decade? Yet the farther I go, the more I learn and realize that having a dispassionate advisor who is completely up-to-date is well worth the money. I mean, we don't think twice about hiring doctors, lawyers, and accountants, do we? It can be nice to have someone who has your back, don't you think? Josh Bannerman is the CEO of Bannerman Wealth, a full-service wealth management firm established in 2009 with offices in Dallas and Detroit, but serving clients in 27 states across the country. He specializes in working with small business owners, senior corporate executives at medical professionals, and federal law enforcement officers. He also plays the part of The Other Guy, aka OG, on the Stagging Benjamins podcast, where he speaks freely behind the scenes, shares thoughts on the state of the financial planning industry, and guides listeners towards better money solutions. Josh, welcome to Earn and Invest. Let me ask you a basic question. With the proliferation of blogs and podcasts like Stagging Benjamins, has it decreased the necessity of financial advisors like you? I mean, there's so much information out there nowadays.
1: I heard a phrase the other day that I think is really helpful in this. If information was all that was required, we'd all be millionaires with six pack abs. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes and no. I mean, I think that educated people make better decisions. And, you know, years ago, you were talking about your history of working with. An advisor, and I'm going to use air quotes. You can't see me, but I'm using air quotes. But um, working with financial people, you know, 50 years ago, there was a thing of as as I knew more than you. I could I had a faster computer than you possibly could imagine, and I had a team of people 50 years ago, and that's why you would work with a stockbroker or a financial planner. And as more information become became red, more readily available, that angle, if you will doesn't exist doesn't exist anymore. All information is public immediately. Some information is private and you can't use that unless you're in Congress. And uh <laughs> too soon. <laughs> but <laughs> no, just right, just right. <laughs> just just right timing, good timing. But you know, you can't use that to make information or make make decisions. So, if you believe in efficient markets, which is to say that everybody has all of the information available all the time, then there is really not an informational advantage especially when you think about like big companies like you know Apple and Google and Facebook and that sort of thing when i think about like whether or not our profession is on the upward trend or the downward trend i i think it can only help to have people that are more educated you know there's lots of people who work with professionals whether it's financial or otherwise who just say i, I don't know anything about my medical i don't know anything about my 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 body, doc, you tell me what to do. take these pills, take these pills, don't take those pills, eat that food. got it but then who are who are the better patients, the ones who are take take an investment in in their own personal health and well being now there's the other side of that coin. hey, I was reading on Google <laughs> you know and it turns out I have heart disease and cancer. <laughs> like, so there's you know there's a little bit of an issue there, I suppose. But no, I think it's a fantastic thing that, that more people are interested in money.
0: We tend to, in our own mind, make this dichotomy. It's either you do it on your own or you completely entrust everything to advisor. And the truth of the matter is, like the best patients, the people who understand finances best work in concert and really spend a lot of time understanding their finances as well as getting advice. I want to come back to this idea of using a financial advisor, but before I do, let's delve into a little bit of your history. You are a Marine. Tell me about why you decided to go in the Marines. How old were you and kind of where were you in your career trajectory at that point?
1: Career trajectory. I was a 17, uh, well, I guess it was an 18-year-old at the time when I signed on the proverbial dotted line. I remember that I was... This will not come as a shock to you, but I was always a performer. You know, like I did plays and you know that sort of thing. And I kind of like being on stage. <laughs> Weird. And I, and I had a play practice. I was a senior in high school. I had play practice, and and I said to the director, I said, "Hey, I can't come this week. You know, on Tuesday or whatever." And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Because I'm joining the Marines and I have to go do this thing." And he almost fell out of his chair. He's like, "You? No, 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 no." And the next day. I got called into just about every administrator's office one after another going, no, no, this isn't what you're going to do. And that almost that almost made it that much more like, oh, now I definitely am. <laughs> I was kind of sort of pretty much going to do it, but now I'm definitely going to do it just to like spite you people. So yeah, I joined the Marines when I was right out of high school. I, I joined as a reservist. It was in the mid-90s, so there wasn't anything per se going on. You know, it was at the... After uh, the first Gulf war and long before 2001. So I joined as a reservist and went to college while I was in the Marines. So I did the, you know, if you remember the commercials, you know, the uh, a weekend a month and two weeks during the summer type of thing. That's it's a little bit more than that. They, they kind of undersell the time commitment a smidge. But yeah, so I got out roughly 15 days before my guys went to Iraq for the first time. Smack dab in the middle of nothing.
0: Why do you think everyone's first reaction to you saying, oh, I'm going to go sign up for the Marines was, oh, no, 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 you can't do that?
1: Well, I know exactly why it is, is because I went to a private high school and the private high school that I went to was designed primarily for teaching people how to become, or like kind of putting them out on the path to become pastors or teachers. And, and it wasn't wasn't expected. It wasn't like, hey, if you go here, you're gonna be a pastor. If you go here, you're gonna be, you know, a a school teacher. But a lot did. And that was kind of the the path of that. I mean, when I was in high school, I learned Latin. I took four years of Latin. You know, nobody does that in real life. My kids don't believe that. They're like, you nobody does Latin, Dad. They do Spanish. I said, oh, I took Spanish too.
0: My my daughter's in Latin, by the way.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I still remember the first sentence that I ever learned in Latin. It's the only thing I remember is the first sentence that I ever learned in Latin. But but anyway, so it was a college preparatory school that was designed to move you in the path of preparing you to, to, to be in public ministry. And that wasn't a path that I was going to take, but I think a lot of people still had hopes that that might be the case. And uh, although, I mean, frankly, Rain Corps needs chaplains too, so that could have been that. But no, I was, I was a machine gunner. I was the furthest thing from a From a chaplain in the Marine Corps, you could find. That wasn't the path for me, but it it was the how am I going to pay for college? You know, I didn't, uh, my parents weren't wealthy. They didn't have any money for that matter. So it was kind of incumbent on me to figure it out. And Uncle Sam said he had a plan for me that included some college money. So uh, I figured I can run around and play in the sand for a while to do that.
0: So I'm looking at your influences. You're talking about pastoralship, teaching. Then you become a machine gunner. How does that lead to a career of, of financial advising? Like when did you decide, hey, now that's what I want to do with myself?
1: It's funny. I I mean, I can I can reflect on this. It's been 20, 30 years now since I was in high school. But I went to Michigan State. I did terrible. I was a great student in high school, all A's, the occasional B, reasonably decent athlete, just kind of a not the smartest kid, not the fastest kid, but Top 50% anyway, I'd like to say. (laughs) Went to Michigan State, was a terrible college student. I like to say that I left Michigan State before Michigan State left me. (laughs) Before I got the letter asking me to not consider them for my second year of college, I had already decided not to go back. So I dropped Michigan State, not the other way around, is what I like to say it. But came home, worked for a semester, went back to community college, just kind of bounced around a little bit. And started working. One of the jobs that I had was I worked at a bank and we got, we, you know, we, we did banking stuff, checking accounts and credit cards and stuff like that. But I had been investing since I was 11. So when I was a paper boy, I had all this money, it made like two or $300 a month at 11 years old. And my parents told me how to put it in the bank. And I went to the bank and there was a big sign that said Franklin Templeton funds. And I said, I want to put my money there and my parents hated the idea but my mom was like it's your money you're going to lose it all you'll see and uh, that's how i bought my first car so i started investing when i was 11 and when i worked at the bank i'd see cd rates at whatever they were 2% but putnam had their mutual funds and this was kind of you were talking about the tech stuff so in late 90s i'm like well this is way better why would you put money in the cd when you can put it in the in the market so that kind of uh, continued that interest i responded to a ad at American express to when they were hiring financial advisors. And I think the criteria were at the time, something around fogging a spoon and <laughs> which you could <can> do, <laughs> which, <I was laughs> which you're good at ultimately qualified for. But yeah, I mean, it was, diff- it's a different world now, of course, you know, like people that, you know, there's, there's schools that have CFP programs, colleges, you can graduate with a degree in financial planning. That wasn't a thing in the 90s it was 100% a sales job i would argue kind of it still is but but anyway so yeah so that's how that's how that got started i just i was always working and i was always entrepreneurial i don't remember having a job in which i got a salary every time i made money it was because of the fact that i did something for that so that combined with the fact that my parents didn't have any money and my experience in investing frankly, from the late 80s until the mid-90s on my own, which was pretty good, notwithstanding the little bit there in the early 90s. That just kind of sold it for me.
0: I've interviewed lots and lots of financial advisors, and a good deal of them describe like a come-to-Jesus moment. They be like, I entered the profession, I was working, and then I decided that the financial industry as it was presented to me was broken. And and so I've heard this over and over again and people say they have this moment and they say I'm going to do things different. When you got there, did you ever have that kind of moment where you're like, okay, I don't like the way things are being done now. Maybe there's a different way to do it.
1: No, it's funny that you say that because I I'm, I'm aware of a of a marketing organization whose strategy <laughs> is to teach planners to say that story or some version of that story. <laughs> I've gotten and, a million times when I've interviewed people. Yeah. I wouldn't surprise me, but apparently it works. No, I mean that in the story of like, woe is me. Like, you know, dad, dad passed away when I was young and I had to take care of the family and, you know, mom didn't have insurance. So I vowed I would help you, you know, that story. I didn't have any of that. No, I start. you know, I worked at American Express and American Express turned into Ameriprise, which is what it is now. Well, it didn't turn into it. It spun it off, I guess, and worked there for ten years. So I started in the nineties, late nineties, worked on my own and in a small partnership with a couple of other people for ten years. And it's a sales business, you know. And and anybody who works at at any of those organizations, whether it's Ever Jones or Merrill or Morgan or or UBS or Ameriprise or any of the other ones, Wells Fargo, whatever, you know, you have a boss, and the boss has a boss, and the boss has a boss, and you know, they all have different goals for you, which may not be in alignment with the goals for what you have for yourself. That I think, plus it it seems pretty obvious where the industry is going and where it was going, which is less on a consumption model, meaning bring me your 100,000 so I can make a commission on it. And then I'll talk to you never again, versus an ongoing advice-based relationship model. And Ameriprise, much to their credit, was way ahead of this, like they and i don't i don't know if they still have this as their is kind of their their line not line in the sand, but their their kind of flagpole was that they did more financial plans than any other company. you know they have lots of advisors, ergo they can do lots of financial plans, but the the manager that I had in the area that I worked in was very heavily focused on financial planning and and it was kind of a it was kind of silly because I remember. I remember a circumstance where it wasn't me, but it was another friend of mine who got a new client. And usually, when you know, it's like you high five. I mean, you know, it's it's a sales business, right? So, but the but the client didn't want to do a financial plan, and the VP of the office said, "Then he can't he can't be your client." <laughs> So, which which, you know, makes a ton of sense. I wouldn't take a client now who just said, "Here is a million dollars invested for me." I said, "Well, what's the purpose of it?" You know, we got to have a plan first. But they were really kind of that was their that was their stake in the ground. So they taught us very well about how to charge for advice. They taught us how not, not a lot, but what we did and and, you know, how everything was from a financial plan. Now, some people would say the financial planning process was really designed to sell product, which you know, there's a byproduct of that, a hundred percent. But rarely have I seen a financial plan wherein a client is a hundred percent perfect and requires no changes whatsoever. So, it's a little bit of a chicken or egg thing, there, I suppose. But anyway, so yeah, so I worked at Ameriprise for ten years and then left and just started my own thing in two thousand nine. Perfect time to do it. I was finishing grad school and having a baby. My wife does not appreciate that, but the or did not appreciate it. There's a story about entrepreneurs. You know the um, entrepreneurs are really great firefighters. You can always tell if there's an entrepreneur in the room because they can solve problems like crazy. Like, oh, I know how to fix it. I can fix it. Oh, I can handle it. Da, 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 da. But when but when entrepreneurs get bored, they are very good fire starters. <laughs> so <laughs> they're like, things are going really great for the last 10 years. You know what I should do? I should start my own business right now. Oh, the wife's pregnant with the kid doing two months? Even better. Yeah. <laughs> Go to grad school? Of course. So I left. Left prize and started my own in, in 2009.
0: I want to pivot this conversation to talk more about financial advisors and how they interact with people in the real world. You said a few times, you know, this is a sales job. You know, the argument coming from a lot of independent people who want to invest on their own is, is look, maybe I don't need this. This stuff is being pushed on me. I can go learn it on my own. I'm just wondering, as you look at the population, you've now been in this field for for decades, what percentage of the population do you think needs financial advice? Like, I imagine there's a certain number of people who can truly do it on their own, but is that a big number?
1: I don't think the answer... I, well, let me say it this way. There's a lot of people who could do it on their own, but the greatest determinant to long-term investor success is not whether or not you're smart enough to do it. It's whether or not you have the stomach for it. There's, there is an opportunity for planners to provide information that people don't otherwise know. Here's a tax thing, doc, that I know that you don't, and now I made you money or saved you money or something. Or here's a an investment that I have access to because of a relationship or you know the size of the business that I manage or something like that that you don't have. And therefore, that makes you or saves you some money. So there's some components of that from the advice standpoint. But I think that the vast majority of advice or the vast majority of of success that comes from working with a professional is when they provide you the ability to not make bad decisions. And the problem with that being a value proposition is that it's not measurable, I can't prove to you that you would have done something dumb five years ago. <laughs> you know, unless you like literally came in and said, I'm gonna do this dumb thing and I talked you out of it. But even so, it's hard to measure the impact of that because of the fact that advice like that, the behavioral type of advice is very nonlinear, meaning it's it doesn't happen, doesn't happen, doesn't happen, doesn't happen for 10 years and then you prevent one thing or you do one thing that changes the whole trajectory of your lifetime from that point on, and then also doesn't happen again for the next 10 years, it's hard to like pin that down and go, see, that's the thing. I have this stat. I just happened to see it today. So since we're talking, I've got it. The last, let's say, 25 years, January of 1996 through December of 2020. So is that about 25 years, I guess, right? Yep, yep. Give or take. Yep. Give or take the average return, average annual return of the Russell 3000. So the Russell 3000 is kind of like a global, kind of an everything index, kind of like an S&P, but maybe a little bit more stocks. So the average number 9.7, that wouldn't surprise you, I don't think. If you miss the best three months, 8.2. So guess when the best three months ended? When? Now that's the part where I said, guess, you have to...
0: When the last three months ended? The, the best
1: three months. So let's assume you weren't invested in the in the best three months. Because when did the best three months happen? They happened ima- after a crappy three months. Right, <laughs> right. right. So I imagine
0: it happened after the bottom of the Great Recession.
1: It actually happened. The best three months happened at the end of... It ended June 22nd, 2020. Oh, really? All so right. those were the best three months in the last 25 years, notwithstanding not, not counting 2021. I don't have 2021 data. So mm-hmm. through the end of December of 2020, the best three months of the previous 25 years happened that year and ended in the summertime. So I know of, this is not an anecdotal story, I know it happened, of an investment advisory firm who on March 23rd had $600 million of client assets. The market was down 10% that day said, we're just going to be conservative for our clients. Now we're going to take all the money out and took $600 million out of the market Jeez, on that day. And when I heard that story, I knew in my soul that that was the end of the, that was the bottom. I couldn't prove it to anybody at the time. It just so happens that that's the case. But when professionals finally give up, that's kind of a good sense of when you <laughs> you're know, there, when, <laughs> when, 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 when you're there, but Intuitively, it has to make you know. In the post mortem of it, you can go, "Well, that was really dumb," but put yourself back to that spot, or put yourself back to 2008 or 2009 when the stock market was going down seven, eight percent a day, a day, a day, and then it happened in or consecutively. Like, oh, the market's down another 10 percent today. You know, this was the bottom March of last year, or I'm sorry, March of 2020 was the bottom of of a 35% decline in 17 trading days against a pandemic that the world had never even comprehended before. We were all thinking the same thing. Everybody was. And so if you stayed the course during that three-month period of time, your average return for 25 years was 1.5% higher. If you missed out on that three months, you lost out on 1.5% a year, compounded for 25 years. Okay. Can I prove to you that you would have done that or not done that? No, of course not. I think that we do financial planners who are who who do well for clients do three things. They they prevent mistakes, they help do things that you don't know exist and they save you time and energy. And all all three of those things have to add up in your mind as a consumer to being worth it. And there's no value. I can't. I can't put a price tag on that.
0: You didn't mention any of those three returns. Like there wasn't because I know you know your average person is going to say, "What returns can I expect?" And that was not one of your three points. Are we overthinking the returns issue?
1: Let me ask you this: If you get to your deathbed and you have enough money. Did you care whether or not you got 7.8 or 8.2 or 9.7? Yeah. No. Of course not. Of course The not. only thing you care about is the journey. The only thing that anyone cares about, the, the measuring stick, unfortunately, is investment returns. That's your day-to-day. That's the day-to-day kind of how am I doing? But frankly, if you're working with a good planner anyway, what are we talking about? Are we talking about, hey, the Russell did this and your portfolio? No. What do you care about? Am I on track for retirement? My kid's going to go to college. Am I to have enough money to send my grandkids to college? You know, that sort of thing. What's the lifetime value of, I can't even think of the word that, whatever, think of a big negative word for me. You have to think of a big negative word. I can't even, I can't can't even put it together. But the failure, um, (laughs) it's like way worse than failure. I'm trying trying to find something (laughs) way worse than failure. But that's destruction. All of the, yeah, I mean, (laughs) destruction. That's a good one. So, the destruction of of family wealth that happens because people put money in stupid target date funds that that expire on your 65th birthday. What in the heck is going on? And and not even the fact that, like for that 10 year period, when by the way, that's when you want we talk about it on the second benchman show. The last double is the one that matters. <laughs> you know? So, so what you know, when you've accumulated all this money, you worked your entire life you're 55 years old, you're 57 years old and you need that one last double. Your 401k goes, yeah, now's the time to be really conservative. You know, because you're going to retire in 7 years, you need it. No, no. You need you need your 1 years worth of money at 65. You also need money when you're 95 and statistically probably higher than that. Right? So you know this: a non-smoker couple, age sixty-five. One in one, one of those two people are going to live to be over ninety-two. It's a thirty-year retirement. If you're a 30 thirty-year portfolio, did you invest when you were thirty? Like you needed the money at thirty-one? Of course not. You need, yeah. You know, I've got thirty years. So why would you not have your money at? And now let's take that another step of the way. I, I well, let me just say it this way: I've got a different story. I like this one better. I have three kids. How many kids do you have? Thank you. I have two. Two kids. Okay. So you have to have three in my example. So pretend you have another one. My kids have I hope for them that they also have three kids. If that's what they choose and that's what's right for them and their families, that would give me nine grandchildren, which I think would be pretty cool. My grandpa my grandparents had 21. 21. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Nineteen boys, two girls. Oof. The last two. So I have have lots of cousins, which is cool. But so I hope for my kids that they have three kids. And I hope for my grandkids that they have three kids, which would give me 27 great-grandchildren. I plan on living to be 140. So I'm going to see all these people, which is really cool. So I have 27 great-grandchildren. I did this exercise and I said, what would be a fantastic retirement? Like in terms of lifestyle, monthly income, I decided that number was $25,000 per month. I think that'd be pretty good. Yeah, that's I don't know about that. you. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, how far away are my great-grandchildren's retirement? It's 110 years. Yeah. yeah. Near as I can tell. Kind of assuming that, you know, they turn 30 and they have kids and so on and so forth. 110 years. And I got 27 of them and I got to give them 25 grand a month in today's dollars and so I got to add inflation. I'll save you all the math, but, but basically I've got 110 years to, to accumulate seven and a half billion dollars, which is a lot of money. So the $25,000 question is, how much money do I have to set aside today, assuming normal market returns, to get roughly seven and a half billion dollars that my great-grandchildren can enjoy when they're 65 years old to the tune of 25K a month plus inflation? And what do you think that number is?
0: I have no idea. I'm going to say, you know, you know, on the trivia on stacking Benjamins, I'm always off by a factor of 10. So let's, let's, let's start with that, but let's say mm, doubles every seven years. If you make what 10%, a little bit more than that. Right. So let's say somewhere around
1: three to 4 million. The number is closer to three to 400,000. So you have successfully stayed to your 10. Yes. Yes. See, I'm,
0: I'm consistent.
1: But even if even if you're right or I'm right, right, either of those numbers are a fraction of what seven and a half billion is, yeah, right? Yeah. And now think about this: as you're an investor, as you are in your fifties and sixties, and your portfolio is designed to get very conservative, what are you giving up? Yeah. What what family intergenerational wealth is not happening because of the fact that you solve for you, which is fine right like not everybody has the goal of like I, I, frankly it's not a goal of mine i just did it as an exercise but 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 not everybody has the goal of like endowing their great grandchildren with 300k a year of lifetime income you know on their 65th birthday but but the the amount of money that is just wasted because of the fact that well the internet said i should be conservative like shouldn't i you know i'm 50 so i should have 50% of my money in bonds You know that are paying what a a quarter of what inflation is these days. Frankly, you know, I mean, so what's all that worth? Not to mention, by the way, we might save you some money on taxes, or we might have a smoother ride. You might have not have those ups and downs that you're that you're that you're used to now. So, the measuring stick, I think, is incorrect. People measure on on investment returns which is a component right that's a fa- that's a function of what investment advisors do financial planners do but goal attainment has to be the the thing and 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 if we can if we the collective we i think help get you there with a smoother ride i don't know i don't you know what's what's that worth that's up to that's up to the consumer to decide and we'll see where it goes from here but i think but i think that back to your original question about like an educated public and that sort of thing that's going to help inform better decisions, because, because the more that you know about what money can do, the more that you can think about what's possible for you to do for you and your family and families, families and all that sort of stuff too. Again, 50, 80 years ago, life expectancy was a lot lower, and you had a pension and you got your 2,000 bucks a month, and that was life. How great would it be if the social security crisis was solved because people figured out how to invest on their own? And I didn't need social security anymore. I mean, there's so many byproducts of of an educated consumer, far out far outweigh the occasional one that's like, I'm I'm too smart for this.
0: We're talking with Josh Bannerman. He is the CEO of Bannerman Wealth, a full service wealth management firm established in 2009. We are going to take a short break. I am Doc G, and this is the Earn and Invest Podcast. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to remind you that if you're enjoying the Earn and Invest podcast, there are a few other ways in which you can interact with our community. The first is our Facebook group. This is the place where we discuss all our episodes of personal finance, today's headlines. Just go to earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. Again, that's earnandinvest.com slash Facebook. While you're there, you can also go to earnandinvest.com. That is my website where you can find all of our old episodes, some blog posts, as well as video content. We'd love to see you there. You can join our newsletter. Also, my new website, jordangrummet.com, that's J-O-R-D-A-N-G-R-U-M-E-T.com, is now live. And there you can go to find out everything about the book launch, which is scheduled for August. 2022. My book, Taking Stock, is about the confluence of my knowledge as a personal finance podcaster as well as end-of-life as a hospice doctor. I talk about the stories, what I've learned from taking care of people as they've neared death, and what that has taught them about money and happiness, Check us out at any of these places, and I'd love to see you become part of our community. Now back to the show. Let me reintroduce you. We are talking to Josh Bannerman. He is also known as the other guy on the Stagging Benjamins podcast, where he speaks freely behind the scenes, shares thoughts on the state of the financial planning industry, and guides listeners towards better money solutions. Josh, in the last segment, we talked a lot about what financial advisors do for people. One of the biggest hurdles, I'd say, for your average novice is trying to pick out who should be their advisor. And I hear a lot of people specifically discuss how that advisor is paid, and it almost becomes the main way in which someone picks an advisor. Are they making commissions? Is it an asset under management? type fee structure or are they fee only I feel like we spend a lot of time thinking about this and not necessarily the quality of the advisor themselves
1: yeah yeah or the yeah quality of the advice I think I think anybody who is committed to helping uh people over a generation you know over their entire livelihoods of making better decisions is a quality person <laughs> you know it's whether or not there's a quality advice component of their takes time and a little bit of uh, on the job training maybe a little bit, you know to kind of kind of learn learn how to deliver advice is a different thing than knowing how to do advice, I suppose, but or be a good good person. It's really interesting about this. Everybody's got their own little angle on compensation. I would say that the vast majority of commission type business is on its way out. The the leftover commission type stuff is in annuities and in insurance. That's kind of the the last, pretty much the last holdover. There's some companies that really focus on, on a commission thing, and this and the sales pitch is really strong. Hey, why do you want to pay me one percent a year for this? You can just pay me five percent once, and then we're good. And then that person shows up in our office five years later and goes, you know, Bill hasn't called me in five years. I go, yeah, you know why? Because he got paid. I mean, it's just. You can see the incentives, and you can see where it lines up. There's no incentive to provide ongoing consultation if you're if you're paid on a one-time thing. The car sales guy that I bought my last car from, when I texted him a question, he didn't even reply. And I I had been, you know, it was not an inexpensive purchase, and and it was a month later. It wasn't a bothersome question. It was like, hey, how do I get the such and such a thing to work? Nothing. I had to call the service department. Yeah. Mason doesn't work here anymore. Like, oh, okay, great. Maybe that's why I didn't reply to my text message. So I think the vast majority of that's kind of on its way out, and and you can see that in other countries, for example, in uh, the UK, in Australia, you have to uh, disclose that, like the dollar terms, which which people can use that to their advantage or disadvantage. You know, if I tell you, hey, it's one percent a year, like that may seem like a lot of money to you or not a lot. If you have two million dollars and I tell you it's one percent a year, you go, okay, whatever you might say, oh my gosh, it's $20,000, a lot of money. It's kind of, again, relative, I think, to, to everything else. So I think that the commission type stuff, especially for insurance products is probably also going to be on its way out. The rest of it, whether it's charged based on assets or charge a fixed planning fee or charge an hourly rate or charge a, a, a flat dollar amount and just be like, hey, we only, you know, our fees are really simple. It's 10,000 bucks a year. It all... It all can boil down to the same thing, which is what's the complexity involved and what's the expertise of the person that you're working with? I think that if you look across the industry, you see lots of people who charge different ways. None of them are right and none of them are wrong. It's where they want to put the value. And the great thing is about being a business owner and entrepreneur is that you get to choose. That's another another great byproduct, by the way, of... Everything being online, you know, you said trying to find a good advisor. I think trying to find a good advisor who's good at the thing that you need help in is also super important. And you mentioned in your example at the very beginning of walking into a fidelity office and getting the first person that walked out of the break room, you know, or drew the drew the <laughs> yeah. short, the short was, stick for you. I was, frankly,
0: I was clearly, yeah, getting the best person possible. Yeah. yeah,
1: yeah, but now you can say, hey, I'm a, you know, there are people and I know them who specialize. In only working with physicians. I have a good friend of mine who only works with eye doctors, not only eye doctors, eye eye doctors. doctors who own their own practice and who are thinking about selling out. He knows everything there is to know about being a eye doctor and all the business ownership issues and and you know, all the stuff that goes with it. You know, it's just we don't know what we don't know, but he does a lot about that stuff so if you're in that industry you don't have to walk into a fidelity office anymore you probably already know of him and you go okay that's my guy when i'm ready to sell i'm going to go to him because he knows everything there's to know so so part of financial planning i think and and again an educated consumer is knowing that hey these there's somebody out there who's perfect for me based on the things that i need help with at the moment with the evolution of different pricing Monthly or hourly or whatever, that also opens up financial planning to a whole bunch of different places. A lot of the people who say, "Well, I just charge a flat fee, you know it's just ten thousand dollars a year they They are excluding a whole bunch of people who don't have an extra ten grand a year lying around, and the people who do have ten grand a year lying around, which is great for that business owner, but how did they get there? You know that was always a thing that I don't want to say rub me the wrong way, but just I just didn't really like about. About as your business continued to grow, and I saw this happening in other in, in in I saw this happening at Ameriprise was the the more successful you got, attracted more successful people, which makes sense, right? Like you're going to hang around different people, and those people are going to hang around different people, and whatever. But what about all the thirty year olds who also want to make really good decisions, but don't have a million bucks yet? They were excluded from from advice and and now because of the fact that you can do whatever you want you can charge a monthly fee say hey you know you can't pay me 10,000 bucks a year that's cool we'll do 200 bucks a month and that and that fits where you are with the advice that you need with a professional who specializes in that i mean how great is that i mean it's it's awesome i i think that the good news is is that if you're looking for somebody you can find that person
0: any specific gold stars or red flags that kind of the person out there who's just starting their search can use to sort through the mass of people available
1: i think that if you're on the on the financial planning side still the kind of measure of success there is the cfp the certified financial planner you can go on the cfp board the website cfp.net and search for people in your area you can search for specialties that sort of thing i mean google's super powerful Frankly, you know, I need a financial advisor who specializes in student loans for doctors. There's, there's ten of them out there, I guarantee that. And you can interview them. I think on the planning side, CFP is really important. I think you have to do some due diligence. You know, the the SEC and FINRA still maintain a big database of of everybody. You have to be registered in one of those places. Sometimes at the state level, sometimes at the federal level, but it's always there. And if you put in that person's name. And their location, it will kind of give you their history. That doesn't mean that they didn't do anything wrong. It doesn't mean that they're not capable of doing wrong. And it also, if something bad is on there, doesn't mean that they are wrong. You know, there's, there's, it's kind of a weird auditing process and that sort of thing. So it just gives you something to ask about. I will tell you, however, that those who are really great at being shysters are also really great at talking off. Here's why I have ten disputes on my record. Yeah, <laughs> you, know? Yeah, yeah. you know, they're they're pretty slick at that point. But it would be something to have a conversation about. Like, hey, I see this situation happened fifteen years ago. Like, what's it about? Uh, this thing happened six weeks ago, and it's still pending. Mm, that might give me a little bit more pause. So those are the kind of the first two things. The biggest piece I think is you have to you have to like the person that you're hanging out with. You know, that old song, how can we, how can we be lovers if we can't be friends? Yep. Yep. I don't know who sang it. I just remember that. I can just (laughs) remember that. Wisdom there. Wisdom. Yes. It's like, I would think about this as a trusted, you know, family member for a long time. And you can tell pretty quickly, and that's not a guarantee of a lifetime relationship, but you can also tell pretty quickly. And you're in a room of people like who you like hanging out with and who you don't. You'd introduce somebody if you know you go play golf and your buddy brings a buddy to p- complete the foursome. You can tell pretty quickly whether or not you're going to like the guy or gal. And if you don't, you just okay. You know I can hang out and play around of golf, but you don't want that person to be your family doctor. You don't want that person to be your financial planner because I want to have a lot of communication with you. If you're 40 and we're thinking about retirement when you're 65, and we talk every six months about your retirement for an hour, we will have completed one full work week of time in 25 years. That's not a lot, right? I mean, there's more stuff that that we do and your planners do behind the scenes, of course, and all that, and you're doing a lot of work too. So there's more than that. But focused time is 50 hours if you got 25 years to go. If you skip a couple of those because you can't stand hanging out with Josh, what's the likelihood of you staying on track? So don't discount that either. If you kind of get in a conversation, you go, "Boy, this person really kind of speaks my language." I, you know, I, 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 I like hanging out with this person. Like that's a good fit for you. Background is super important. Regulatory background is super important. But I also think whether or not you like the person is also equally important.
0: Let's spend a little bit of time talking about goals. A big reason people get financial advisors is for saving for retirement. It is one of the biggest things we do during our working life. It seems like every six months to year, we have a new controversy about the safe withdrawal rate, right? That's the amount of money that you should draw from your investments every year in order to support yourself and yet still have enough to retire. There's the traditional 4% or 4% rule. A lot of people want an easy button Tell me what you think about the four percent rule and why it becomes so controversial all the time. Like why every six months is there a whole new outcry about whether it is the right or not right planning tool for retirement?
1: It should be the three point eight percent rule now. It should be the four point six percent rule.
0: Yeah. And it changes like every six months.
1: it does. Yeah. I mean, so you probably know more about this than I do. But generically speaking, this is saying under how under how many circumstances of a thirty year retirement, were you successful if you withdrew X percent of your portfolio and maintained equal weighting of stocks and bonds? And the researchers found, and this was in the mid-90s, found that about 4% was the number. So if you had 4%, or if you took out 4% a year plus inflation, so if you have a million dollars in your investment account when you retire on your 65th birthday, you take out $40,000 that year, plus inflation every year thereafter, and you're 50-50. So half your money's in stocks and half your money's in something other than stocks, you got a really good likelihood of that money lasting until you're 95, a 30-year retirement. And if you're looking for the easy button and that's what you want to do, fine. Say make it four percent or make it three if you want to be conservative, or make it five if you want to be aggressive. I've seen stuff that says the number can be as high as six or six and a half. The reality is, is that financial planning is not linear like that. If you retired on January 1st of 2008, I guarantee that sometime between then and the next 2 years you made a change to your retirement plan. Because you didn't go into it, you know, thinking, "Hey, my first year I'm going to be down 50%." So, financial planning, yeah, what we talk about is that it's not it's not a it's not a noun. A financial plan is a thing, right? And as soon as I hit print, if you and I go through all this work, and we create a financial plan and we go okay here's the plan tomorrow there's new data the stock market does something different the economy does something different congress does something different you know so there's new stuff so it's not a plan that matters it's planning that matters i think eisenhower said that or something right i think that financial planning over your lifetime is going to be full of lots of different changes i know i know many people who retire and and then spend way more money than they thought they were going to in the first decade because you've got the bucket list of stuff, right? Plus, by the way, are you also going to be getting on a plane and jet-setting across the world when you're 97? Probably not as much. So, if you have a choice, why would you not spend a little bit more money now in exchange for not, you know, not spending as much later? You have to offset that with inflation, of course. But but it's unique to everybody. Some years you're going to spend more, some years you're going to spend less. I would argue the last two years in the market, had you been invested correctly, if you're still accumulating money toward retirement, you've probably bought yourself two or three years of early retirement at this point. If you were planning on retiring at 65 and your money has been invested correctly, you know, and you're getting market returns over the last couple of years, you're probably th- two or three or maybe even four years ahead of schedule right now well what if you don't want to be ahead of schedule well that means you've got extra money to spend so there's that option likewise the person who gets unlucky who retires on Jan 1 2008 and sees half of his retirement portfolio evaporate in a year probably also made some changes and if you just blindly just said well the internet said 4% so off i go you know that's that's also equally foolish i think I think there's two great sins when it comes to when it comes to retirement planning or financial planning. One is obviously not saving enough money. I mean, that's you have so much time. And and by the way, if you're 50 and you're like, well, I'm almost out of time, you're not out of time. You have so much time. Compounding is so magical that you have to you have to do something. You can't just manifest stuff out of nothing. You have to work for it. But but we talk to people who are like, you know, in their early fifties, they're like, I haven't done anything. I sent my three kids to college, but how many money? Like, what do I do? Well, guess what? You're not going to retire when you're 58. Like that's factually true, but you also don't have to resign yourself to being dead broke by, the, by your 70th birthday either. So you can, you can, 20 years is a long time. So number one, not saving enough money is, you know, obviously sin number one. Sin number two is saving too much money. And it sounds like ludicrous for a planner to say like, oh, you're saving too much money. But what's <laughs> the point? and I'm going to contradict myself a little bit here, but what's the point of having 10 million in the bank and never taking your kids to Disney? Like I use Disney as an example because anybody who's been there knows that it's like the seventh layer of hell. It's, <laughs> it's, gonna magical? Gonna it's, it's
0: magical. You're going to say magical. Magically. <laughs> no, it's awesome.
1: I love Disney. We're talking, we're thinking about going again, but it's also like mind bogglingly expensive. Like it's stupid money. And I, I remember the last time I we went to Disney, I was talking to my dad and I said, yeah. yeah, we're at Disney. He goes, oh, I remember taking you guys to Disney. And my mom tells a different story. My dad's story is, yeah, we had a good time. That's his version. My mom goes, your dad almost walked away from the ticket counter <laughs> because it was four tickets at Magic <laughs> Kingdom for a dollars, cool <laughs> $50. Bucks. No, it was when I was a kid. I know. It was when you were a kid. Yeah. It it might as well be. it was didn't matter fifty bucks <laughs> thousand bucks didn't matter my my dad was like we're not spending fifty dollars to to walk around a park and look at a look at a, a fancy mouse and my mom had to talk him into it and then when we went with our kids I don't know four or five years ago it was a hundred and five dollars a person a day and so I use that as an example of of ludicrousness on both sides of it right like having your entire life to save a hundred dollars a month like just do it like just save a hundred dollars you're kind of allowed. If you don't do that, I I don't know why not, right? Like that's that's crazy. Just save some money. Also, if you're one of these people that like just saves tons of money and you have like piles of it and you never spend it, like what's the point? Why? What are you giving up now? And so financial planning, I think, especially while you're accumulating money, is also about figuring out what the balance, nothing else in the last couple of years have we learned not that tomorrow is not promised to everybody. And we all think about like, well, you know, when I'm 97 years old, you know, I don't live a full life. It's like, well, yeah, but some people don't make it to 97 and some people just radically don't make it to 97 for random things like car accidents and, you know, getting sick with with random COVID. I mean, it's just, so you have to balance that out. And I think it ties into the other stuff that we we're talking about, but like, what's the value of a planner saying, I think you're good, but you can, you can retire two years earlier now? or how much is that worth or or you can set this money aside for your grandkids or something like that you know versus always dumping money in your 401k because you're so petrified of not having enough you know so the confidence i think is equally important
0: how has covid changed your clients i mean you're talking about the two basic sins right not saving enough and not spending enough have people become more reasonable about their spending are they retiring sooner are they Looking at the world differently since COVID,
1: I think largely I, I can't think of any examples, but but maybe there was one. But largely, everyone had a plan and stuck to the plan throughout. Now, the the good news is is that the the turnaround on that was pretty fast. It wasn't like two thousand eight and two thousand nine, where if you had a plan on January first of two thousand eight and you were still sticking to it in March sixth of two thousand nine, which was the bottom. <laughs> Good on you! (laughs) If you didn't change your plan in those fifteen months, you have a strong stomach. Let's say so. The return on patience was very a very quick turnaround, which also should be, by the way, be a lesson for all of us in the future. But so, by and large, I think people that were working with planners stayed the course. Hopefully, saw a return on that patience pretty quickly. You know, I saw it bottom out. I was even money by December. Or by August, by the end of the year of 2020, I was ahead. And now at the end of 2021, we're recording this. You're way ahead if you still stayed the course. I think what we're seeing is people evaluate whether or not they want to keep doing what they're doing. You know, the media has coined this the great resignation, but it's I think it's more than that. I think it's more I think it's more people saying, I get to choose what I want to do. There's Probably a 70 30 weighting of stories of businesses who are out of this world successful right now because they empowered their people to do whatever. On our team, we don't keep track of free days, we call them free days. we don't keep track of the hours that they work. and my kind of new hire speech, if you will, is you're an adult and if you do adult things, then you continue to be an adult if you if you don't get your work done, then there's consequences. Like I'm not I'm not interested in day-to-day, like it says here that you only worked uh, 39.8 hours and i like, what's up with that? And so there's a lot of anecdotal stories right now of businesses that said, I can't, I can't keep track of it anymore. I can't mandate you to sit here in the office. So uh, I'm going to let you do your thing. And then they were successful. And then employees are realizing, wait a second, I can be successful doing this, I could probably be successful doing that, or maybe I'll be successful sitting on a beach for a year. You know, like there's all sorts of different flexibility I think. A strategic byproduct, a successful strategic byproduct of all of this over the last 2 years has been people reevaluating what's important to them. And as you, you know, as you define what's important to you, then you can start kind of making money decisions around that. Some people are packing their stuff and moving to Costa Rica. <laughs> you know, like that's more important to me. Than my house here. People are upgrading their houses. People are downsizing their houses. Like there's no one way that fits for everybody. It's, it's, it's unique. But I think that as it relates from a planning standpoint, being able to make those decisions is a is a byproduct of having the ability to be calm and 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 cool under pressure because of the fact that you had a plan going into it. It's
0: an interesting point because, you know, my next question, I was thinking about it. My next question was going to be, we've kind of talked a lot about what makes a good financial advisor, what makes a good advisory client. But in a sense, I think you've kind of answered that because looking to 2022 and the rest of the decade, what defines to you as an advisor, what a good client looks like? But it sounds like being calm and, and working a plan is a big part of that.
1: Great clients. Have the ability to do a lot of this stuff on their own, but are but understand the idea that they have a better usefulness in other things in their life, whether it's their profession or family or whatever the case may be and Just like we have trusted third parties, do our taxes, we have trusted third parties, do our estate plan, provide us medical advice, do our surgeries, you know, I think anybody who's smart enough to do their own financial planning is probably smart enough to do their own dentistry you just haven't gone through the training yet, you know, no offense to dentists out there, you know, It's just, that's the path that you chose, right? You know, so if you're a really great engineer and like dedicate your time and energy to doing that, I, I'm in a coaching group, an entrepreneur coaching group called Strategic Coach. And the founder is, his name is Dan Sullivan, just a brilliant guy. And uh, one of the things that he talks about is if you focus on your weaknesses, that's what we're, that's what we tell, you know, that's what we, I don't tell my kids this, but I don't try not to anyway. But we tell people, yeah, like, oh, you should, well, you should work on your weaknesses, right? Assuming that they'll get better. But the reality is, is then you end up with a whole bunch of mediocre weaknesses. <laughs> As opposed to, why don't you work on the thing that you're really good at? Do the thing that you're really good at. And go do that only. And if you can outsource all the rest of the stuff around you, sometimes you have the flexibility to do that, and sometimes you don't. But but if you start outsourcing the things around you so that you can do the thing that you're really good at or find energy from, hanging out with your kids or you know doing the side hobby that you like to do or working really hard and making extra money doing that, the return on that versus the cost of doing your own dentistry or own auto maintenance or lawn care or financial planning is... It's, it's a fair trade, you know, because you're saying, well, I'm giving this up so that I can go do this other thing. Do we have lots of clients who are like, I don't know anything, do it. <laughs> sure. It's a little frustrating. It happens, but I think equally. So we've got the folks who are like, yeah, I, I get it all. I just need somebody else to watch this crap for me so I can go do the stuff that I really want to do and be around in case, you know, I'm not, you know, I mean, there's, there's that side of it as well. Not, not everybody in a relationship ha- e- has equal, interest in finances. So having that third party who exists long beyond you is also super helpful or can be.
0: I think Josh, having this conversation is interesting for me because it definitely has driven me further, even along my evolution from someone with a financial advisor to someone who did it myself back to a financial advisor. And I you What know, did I you think- say
1: your number was? What was that? <laughs> I said, what did you say your phone number was? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> always, it's always a sales job. There's, yeah. there's always a sales job. Yeah.
0: But the point being is there are these things that a financial advisor can do for you that you have a harder time doing for yourself. One is there are certain technical abilities, right? As you were saying, your financial advisor may just know some tricks of the trades and things you may not. The other is objectivity, right? When you're freaking out, a financial advisor can be a calm in the middle of the storm And last but not least, that last point you made, which I think is really important, is leverage. Even though you may have the technical and intellectual ability to manage your own finances, you may not have the time or the interest. You may want to spend your time making more money or building your business or being with your family and friends more. And I think those are all good reasons to come back to this idea of getting financial advice. I want to end this episode, Josh. the way I end every episode by asking you what is up next in your life and where we can find you if we want to learn more first and foremost, what is going on with you and your practice in twenty twenty two
1: i I have a interesting story that that kind of correlates with what you're saying here about kind of being disinterested, kind of that third party thing. I, I remember much like a lot of people at the beginning of Covid, we were taking walks. Right? You didn't know you couldn't go to the gym. You're like I'm gonna. I'll just walk, I guess. And (laughs) like you'd see people, they you'd see people on the sidewalk. You're like I don't know what we do. And like some people would like run in the street, you know, so that you didn't pass people. But my wife and I spent a lot of time walking. I remember distinctly saying to her, "I'm. I don't know that I want to go through this again. This would be. This was had been. This was the third time. So I went through the Y2K, you know, kind of crash the tech bubble." Then obviously the Great Recession, and then here we go into COVID. And I said, This is just like, (laughs) do I really want to do this again? And she goes, and and she said something very poignant at the time, and and it just kind of came out. She wasn't really trying to be Socrates, but she was like basically like, Well, if you're not going to do it, who's going to do it for him? And and I think there's something very heavy there that's like, you know, when it's not yours. I feel an immense responsibility to the 170 families that we serve to make sure that they do it right and make sure that we do it right. Like like that is the the only thing that I care about is if you told me you want to retire when you're 60 come hell or high water we're going to make it happen. And so I feel it, I I feel an immense responsibility to do the right stuff, but I also feel very 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 strongly about like holding your hand when It's not going great. And you're like, I don't know what to do now. And I can say, well, the good news is, is that we've done this, you know, fifty times with other people in terms of retirement or a hundred times. And and PS been through these ups and downs three times in the last 25 years. So I can't tell you what exactly happens on the backside of this, but I can tell you what's happened in the other times. And just hang on follow this path. We've already been up and down it a couple of times. And so, so that I think was for me, my wife is, is kind of the most important person for me. And, and if you've got your person and they have the ability to just speak to you right in the moment where you need it, you know, that, that to me was, she didn't do it on purpose. That was just like what came out of her at the moment. And it was fantastic. So I think having your people, you know, whatever that looks like matters in your life. And whether that's, close family and friends, financial people, doctors, you know, pr- professionals, self-help people, counselors, and and folks that like help get your mind right. You know, Joe and I were talking about this the other day on the show. It's like, we have a good friend who said, yeah, we've got to go to marriage counseling. And we were like, what? Like you guys are in great shape. Like what's up? He's like, yeah, because we go to marriage counseling, <laughs> you know, like we need our people, you know? And sometimes those people involve financial people, you know, and if those people help you, then it's a good fit regardless of all the other circumstances. So anyways, what's happening in 2022 for us, I am a pilot. So I uh, like to fly. My goal is to fly all over the place and visit people in person this year. You know, after two years of doing Zoom meetings, it's time to It's time to have lunch or dinner with people in real life. That's kind of my goal. Although you know, who knows what really will happen. That's kind of on the agenda. We continue to do the Stack and Benjamin show three times a week, which is which is super fun. It's hard to believe we're now ten years doing that. Mm. You know, I mean, I think we're at eleven hundred shows or something. I mean, it's just I can't even keep track of them. Thank God the first like two hundred aren't. 500 aren't even available. I don't even think I'll buy anymore. <laughs> I don't know. They're probably somewhere. We should see if the Smithsonian wants it or something. But I've got three kids. I've got a high school freshman. I've got a seventh grader and a kindergartner. So those folks keep us uh, pretty busy family in Michigan. We live in Texas. So so going back and forth to see mom and dad and grandmas and grandpas and stuff like that for the kids You know, is still, still kind of a thing. My one other true passion other than working and, and uh, flying as I referee college football. So I like to do a little bit of that and that never ends. So, you know, I just try to keep myself pretty busy. And how
0: can people reach out to you if they want to know more?
1: Probably the best thing I would say is listen to Stacking Benjamins show. You know, that's uh, that, that kind of gives you a sense of, uh, of how we think about stuff. Joe and I are old married couple. <laughs> <laughs> Known each other a long time. And so we sometimes bicker like an old married couple is what, uh, what people say. But Stacking Benjamins... You find that on itunes podcast whatever our website's com. all the contact information is there but i just love chatting with people so thank you for uh having me for an hour and 10 minutes on your, on your show today
0: thanks for coming on and, and by far you know don't tell joe this but my favorite part of the whole show is certainly the headlines because mm-hmm. i think when you and joe are batting around ideas and talking about different financial principles I just always get so much out of those conversations and they're a lot of fun to hear.
1: Well, nice of you to say, tell all your friends. (laughs) I will. (laughs) This has been
0: the earn and invest podcast on behalf of myself, Doc G. I'd like to thank Josh Bannerman. That's a wrap. Sweet. Anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't? No,
1: I am uh, such a such a quick start that you could have you could have t- asked me about anything, and I have got uh, make it up as I go.
0: Yeah, you know how to talk.
1: It's all live television. Yeah, I do.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and this is stuff you know about a lot, right? So I'm not asking you about something that's not not part of your wheelhouse.
1: Even if you did, I could make it up. <laughs> you yeah. could make it up as you I'm go. I'm pretty good at making stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> no that's a good chat man you're a good interview you uh, should keep doing it
0: yeah I, I like talking I, I actually think that this is the thing I was meant to do like now after all this after going through being a doctor and all this this is the thing that I yeah. probably get the most enjoyment of doing of all the things I've ever done really even for pleasure or for for work like yeah. this is to me one of the, one of the best things so mm-hmm. I, I think I found the thing I like
1: it only took 38 years
0: yeah yeah (laughs) 38 48 something like that somewhere in there somewhere in there and uh, you know the the cool thing is i don't it uh i'm at this point in life that the only thing it really has to amount to is is my pleasure in it right so like i'm lucky i like don't have to make a living doing this so i I can do it for the pleasure of it and that's really cool
1: yeah how how lucky are we i mean Podcasting is a it's uh, it's a it's a fun activity for us. It kind of sort of kicks off a little bit of money, not not anywhere near what anybody thinks it would, but, um, but a little bit. And, um, um, you know, I get to just hang out with people all day long. It's like a lot of my buddies have like all of these different like criteria. Like, oh, you know, just make sure that they have a million bucks. Or make sure they have I'm like, I don't give a shit. Like what else am I going to do? I got a yeah. team of people like Jen and Jacqueline do all the planning work, and I've told all of my all of our clients this year. I'm like, I don't want to do any planning meetings this year. I like yeah. literally just want to go have dinner with you. Yeah, yeah. We'll do the planning stuff. It'll happen behind the scenes. But yeah. let's and let's you've go got a dinner. team
0: now, right? You got people who know how you think. They know what you like. They know what you yeah. don't like. They're learning on their own. They're bringing new ideas in. So it's like, yeah.
1: you know, you got yeah, you things moving. Yeah. You don't need me to. You know, we don't need to sit across the table from one another to be like, so your Roth IRA this year was up 12%. <laughs> yeah. It's like, who gives a shit? Yeah. You know, like I said, like, that's my favorite question. People are like, so how are we doing? I'm like, well, we plan 7% and the market's up 27. So you're <laughs> so four years do- ahead. <laughs> we're doing okay. You're doing great. How are the yeah. kids? <laughs> like, Let's not talk about the rest Which of Which is time. funny because I
0: think the, the end stage of almost all financial conversations is not to talk about finances, right? That's that's what the end game is
1: absolutely yeah it's uh it's an interesting uh it's an interesting uh uh conversation because you know i mean it's super stressful i still get stressed out about money at our house we just wrote a big check for a big renovation project we're doing here and they the company does all of their money up front it's a brilliant business model <laughs> You know, you want us to buy all this stuff and make it all for you? No problem. <laughs> you owe us all this money. Yeah. Like, how and, much do I pay now? They're like, all of
0: it. Yeah. And you once know. you have any complaints, it's like, you already paid us though. <laughs> like, yeah. When it's taken yeah. six months extra, well, you already paid us.
1: The good news is, and I did ask about that. I was like, so what's up with that? And they're like, well, here's the contract. You own all of the rights to all of this stuff, you know, and if it, do- you know, it doesn't meet your, you, you-, you- will deal with it. But, oh. uh, you know, but, uh, So there's still stresses, but but yeah, I mean, how lucky are we that, you know, healthy kids and two days before Christmas and we're making Christmas cookies and haven't thought about work in a week and
0: happy holidays, man. Yeah. Enjoy
1: yourself.